My nutritional philosophy is, I tell my students actually on day one, I said it's, it's relatively unorthodox. I want people to look at nutrition not as, okay, I'm going to change my diet. We hear the word diet often, and to me that tends to be synonymous with I am healthy because I am on a diet. A diet is just the food that you eat day to day. I would love for people to think about nutrition, not like it's restricting things. My philosophy on nutrition is what is it that I'm eating? Which items are already nutrient dense? What can I add or substitute to fit my lifestyle? Hello and welcome to At Your Service. I'm Tim Banks, the Acting Dean and Department Chair of the Center for Hospitality and Culinary Studies at Howard Community College. And I'm super excited to introduce my guest today, certified executive pastry chef, Maria Bell, who is also part of the team here at Howard Community College. She does a fantastic job teaching our students about amazing things. She's also a sommelier. She's developed and created our nutrition curriculum. So she is a dynamic addition to the team and we're happy to have her. Maria, welcome. Thank you, Tim. I'm so happy to be here. Sure. So I know you're working on some new projects right now. Can you give me some insight as to what's going on and, and how things are progressing? Absolutely. So I'm currently the general manager of Atwaters in Catonsville. We are about to undergo a renovation process for our upstairs dining room. And with that, we'll be putting in a full bar program. So that's starting an entire wine, beer, and cocktail program from scratch, as well as a to-go component downstairs in our everyday kind of retail space. So it'll be more or less two separate beverage programs operating simultaneously and being implemented within a short time frame within each other. Very nice. That sounds cool. So the, these beverages are going to be to-go as well? So we will have a full wine list and we're working on uh, making sure we have some canned cocktails and craft beer. So we won't be necessarily putting any of our products to go. Not just yet. Okay. Don't. Uh, well, actually, I was about to say, don't give me too many ideas, but that's <laughs> probably that's how it works, thought, right? Yes. <laughs> like, yes, give me ideas, but don't, don't give me any ideas. But yeah, so for now, so, it would be two separate to go. Uh, I'm sorry, to go. And then for here, when, when uh, we do complete renovations. Okay, well, that's exciting for sure. I'm looking forward to showing up at Atwaters. I'm sure it'll be a great experience as always. Walk me through your career path, kind of soup to nuts. Everything that you've been doing in culinary, baking and pastry, you're a sommelier. That's another feather in yes. your cap. Tell me about yes. your career path and your journey. Absolutely. So I went to culinary school at the bright young age of 18. I'd pretty much known that I wanted to be in food and beverage and hospitality because that's kind of where my family comes from. I just love to cook. And I became obsessed with it. I got bit by the food bug. So I went to culinary school in New York City. It was called then the French Culinary Institute. Now I think it's called the International Culinary Center. They've expanded into so many different areas. They now have study abroad all kinds of things that didn't exist when I was a youngin. But anywho, from there, I won a scholarship to move to France. So I moved to France 
lived in the south of France, baked uh, at, a, at a small family bakery for about four months. Then I moved back to the United States and started working in the kitchen at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. One day, the food and beverage manager walked by, and I've been there for like two years at, at that point, and he said, you talk a lot. You should uh, join us in the front of house. We have a manager and training program that we think you'd be perfect for. So I was accepted into that program. And then I worked every department in food and beverage at uh, the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. So that gave me that front of house kick. That is where I got my love of wine, my initial love of wine. And I'm always one for a challenge. If there's textbooks that you can buy and you can keep learning and growing with something, of course, I'm interested in it. It's something else to obsess over. So I then started my studies for wine, just wines around the world, understanding how to taste, blind taste, not just drink for enjoyment, but formally assess wine. And then I've been bouncing kind of in between front of house and back of house for the rest of my career. I was at the Ritz-Carlton, you know, working in a supervisor position, then took a step back and then worked front of house just as a server, then moved to another restaurant in Baltimore where we opened two restaurants, which have now or have since been closed. From there, once I was bored with that or Bored with that is a stretch, but bored with that, I then moved to off-premise catering to see what that was like. So working weddings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, you name it, we did it, packaging up all the food and the decorations, setting things up on site. That was very interesting. And then I, around that time, I actually started working at the college, teaching, I've taught pretty much every class under the sun. Then I became a wine buyer for a boutique wine shop in Ellicott City. <laughs> and then I decided I wanted to get myself back into the kitchen, back into the restaurant. So that's why I'm here at Atwaters. I always have a lot of islands in the fire, so to speak. And, you know, that's one of my attractions to culinary arts is that you can do so many different things and continue to grow and evolve. Right. You hit a wall somewhere. You're like, OK, I'm going to go to the next thing. I'm going to go do this. Mm -hmm. And you're still evolving. There's so much to learn. There's so much to absorb from the industry, from all of its aspects, which is awesome. You know, I think that, that yeah. being in culinary arts or in food and beverage itself is extremely dynamic. You can have a very gregarious personality and thrive and you can be an introvert and thrive. So it, it's mm -hmm. just welcoming to all very little resistance on people coming in the industry and not finding a home for themselves. And if you outgrow that home, there's always another one you can go to. Absolutely. So absolutely. tell me a little bit about your travel experience and how that has contributed to your successes. So my travel experience as far as me moving to France or my travel experience just in how I travel and how I look at the world with food. All of it. I think it's all important to be a global citizen and that's what travel does. So I would love to hear about the way you see the world and through your lens. Absolutely. So when I made the decision to move to France, it was the first time I'd really been away from my family. I mean, I was 18. So the first time I'd been away from my family, the first time I'd really been out of the country and I was alone. I moved into a little apartment above the bakery and I was by myself, barely spoke the language. But one thing I found that was universal was, you know, looking at a beautiful pastry display, looking at some beautiful breads and, you know, learning a word or two, fumbling through 
horrible, horribly pronounced French, but still getting the thing that you want. And you'll find that people are willing to have a full-blown conversation with you just centered around food. So that's what I learned when I lived in France. So once I decided that that's how I was going to just travel, it was then about going and finding new experiences. And for me, it's through food. Anytime I'm trying to go somewhere new, whether it's a state I've never been to or a city within a state I've never been to, I usually look up top restaurants in the area. I get a good idea of something or some menus that fit how adventurous I like to be with food and I'm pretty adventurous. And then from there, I talk to the bartenders. I talk to the servers. I ask them, you know, where are your places? Because you're clearly from here. So where do you go to get a local experience? So that way I'm not getting this kind of just theater piece of food and cuisine because some places can be like that. Like New Orleans is one of my favorite cities to visit. Great food city, but you can very easily get just sent right to the the touristy places and you'll miss so many gems where the locals are like, no, that's the best place. I've had this type of sandwich or this is the best, you know, crab cake I've ever had in my life. Every city has those nooks and crannies. I rather look at it through kind of like a local perspective. So I research a bit and then I get the local input. And then that I found has given me more of a better idea of the full blown food scene in an area and the culture that uh, they've infused into their cuisines. Right. I call it eating by neighborhood. Right. So when you go to a city or a, a tourist attraction city, I was just in Vegas a few months ago and You talk to waiters, you talk to bartenders, you talk to servers, you talk to anybody you can that's local, and they're going to tell you where the best places are off the clock, right? So once you get away from those densely packed tourist areas, you really get to discover what the local cuisine is all about. And I've discovered some stuff in Vegas that was amazing, worth the trip. Uh, You know, so those are always highlights that we can definitely take away from a great travel experience. So my next question for you is, where do you see the food and beverage industry headed as far as trends, post-COVID, best practices, all the things that we've kind of learned and we're taking away? What's the future vision for food and beverage, especially in the Howard County area? I'm always curious to see what's going on in Howard County. So I have noticed that we're shifting more towards looking at those local farmers and really leaning into that, you know, sustainable harvesting, really getting fresh produce, fresh vegetables, fresh fruits. I've actually seen more of a seasonality because logistically it's hard to get a lot of the things we're so used to getting. I mean, pre-COVID, we're getting strawberries year round that are of a similar quality. Post-COVID, it's highly seasonal now. I'm seeing less of these things that were readily available in 2019. I'm seeing less of those items year round. So I honestly think that that'll be just just better overall, our carbon footprint and just getting people the best product possible. So I'm really seeing restaurants lean into that creativity, leaning into saying, you know what? We don't have strawberries on the menu right now because it's coming up on fall because strawberries are, are no longer in season. And the customer's starting to understand that those things aren't available and that's okay. So that's one of the major trends I've seen and people, you know, and when I say people, I mean consumers have really started to understand just what seasonality is and and us running out of product. That means we had the freshest product possible. If we no longer have it, that's 
again, logistical or production issue. We're all kind of trying to pick back up. But I think as we pick back up, we become busy. We're starting to all understand from a consumer standpoint and from, you know, the restaurateur and the place of business from a business standpoint that some of these things just aren't sustainable any longer. It's not realistic and it's not necessarily quality driven. We're able to keep certain prices down by not outsourcing and and looking way beyond our you know backyard for some of these food items. So that's one of the bigger trends for me. I'm also seeing a trend in terms of like beer that's hyper local now. We're we're shying away from the macro brews, the Miller Lights, the Coors Lights, the Budweisers of the world, and focusing more on that local moment. If you throw a stone in Howard County right now, you could hit a brewery. <laughs> so people are starting to go back to that. This is my local brewery. This is my favorite hangout spot, especially for those beer drinkers. I'm seeing a quality revolution on wine, people finding new gems, new varietals on menus so that we can keep the pricing down. You know, there was a glass shortage. So some of people's favorite brands have been out of stock for quite some time. Again, logistics. We're trying to, as I think a whole community, find better ways to bring great great products to our customers without leaving them to foot the bill and while also maintaining a profit at the same time. Awesome. I think local is the best way to go sometimes, especially when you're regionally bound to a certain area that's known for something. Amplifying that is a positive thing for everyone. I agree with the beer trends. They're getting super popular with local breweries and the accessibility. There's a, I want to say a spirit shop very close to my house that the beer section has expanded tenfold since I've been living in my neighborhood, maybe a few years now. So it's just so Mm -hmm. much more available and local offerings for beer drinkers to select from. You mentioned varietals in the conversation. Can you tell me or explain to what our listeners, what varietals really mean when we're talking about wines? Absolutely. Uh, It's one of my favorite questions. So varietals would be the recognizable name or the recognized name of one subspecies of grape. So almost all wine grapes are Vitis vinifera. So that's the genus. Then after that, we have the actual varietal or variety of wine. So for example, Sauvignon Blanc is one varietal. Chardonnay would be another varietal. Merlot, Pinot Noir, the names of those grapes would, uh, not would, are synonymous with their varietal. I love it. So if I'm looking for a good wine, I can go with a varietal or I can go with a blend, I'm assuming, right? That blends or combinations of these varietals. Yes. When shopping for wines. Absolutely. Some of the most famous blends, uh, especially domestically, come from uh, California and Washington State. Some of the more famous blends outside of the country would be from France. Bordeaux is probably one of the most recognizable names outside of domestic wine consumption. And Bordeaux actually started off as a style, a house blend of five legally allowed red varietals. And for the whites, about two to three legally allowed white varietals. So how they do that blend is completely up to them. But traditionally, Bordeaux started off as a blend and the wine uh, or the grape growers to the farmers and then the winemakers were always trying to do two things at the same time. Number one, maintain a house style or try to get as close to the quality that people who frequented, you know, or were frequent buyers would recognize and appreciate. But also 
maintaining a snapshot of the vintage because people sometimes forget grapes are crops. And so the crop can vary from year to year. So it's important for the farmer and the winemaker to be in contact with each other, to constantly be tasting, testing quality, to make sure that they maintain their overall house style and to show what the vintage had to offer. It's just about consistency, really. So the blending gives you that ability to tweak it so that you can get as close to that house style as possible. I'm going to go one step lower into this rabbit hole because this is probably the first show that we peeled the layer back on wine a bit. So tell me a little bit about stainless versus oak barreling. Okay. So we've got two different school of thoughts and actually two different processes. Okay. So once we pick the grapes and we press the grapes, we get our grape juice. Now we have some decisions to make. Mainly the first one is we have to ferment it. Otherwise we just have grape juice. I mean, that's, that's the long and short of that. So we mm-hmm. go through fermentation. Now we can ferment in stainless steel or we can ferment in barrels, in wooden barrels. So stainless steel gives me no additional flavoring, no additional biochemical complexity. It's just showing the varietal. When I go into fermentation in oak barrel, that gives me oxidation, okay, because wood is porous. So it's allowing that oxygen to interact with the juice as it's fermenting. That oxidation is releasing a lot of phenolic compounds. And at the same time, we're also getting flavor from the wood itself. Vanilla, dill, coconut, pencil shavings, things like that can be imparted during that process as well. There's some other biochemical processes that go into it. So for example, if it's a white wine and we barrel ferment, we undergo something called malolactic fermentation. And for, I don't want to bore you guys, but malolactic fermentation is basically taking some of the natural acid present in the grape juice. As it's fermenting, it turns that malic acid, which is the acid most similar to like a green apple, and transforms it into lactic acid, which is the acid more similar to like uh, the acid you find in sour cream. So you're getting a much richer and rounder mouthfeel based on that malolactic fermentation. Virtually all red wines go through this in some form and then some white wines like Chardonnay, something that's a little bit richer and hardier that can handle that type of treatment. So those are the two fermentation types. Then after that, we go into potential aging. I can age in stainless steel and it would give me less interaction with oxygen, but allow the wine to kind of settle in and you won't have anything that feels disjointed, too much acid, not enough sweetness, not enough floral character, too much minerality, uh, just allowing us to have balance there. We can also then age in wooden barrels. Again, letting it sit with the ability to get micro-oxygenated is going to soften things, especially red wine tannins. So the longer we have that sit interacting with oxygen, we're getting softer. So less of that kind of like dryness right along the gum line. So there's a bunch of different schools of thought. It's either, am I trying to showcase, or really what it comes down to is, am I trying to showcase the varietal and all of it's just pure expression? Or am I trying to make sure that this is a drinkable product that I can also influence the flavors on? So my my takeaway from that is varietals is a solo act, right? Well-trained, ready to perform, can stand and carry their own. Whereas barrel aging or barrel fermenting is more of an orchestra. It's pulling in all these different nuances from other areas, but still completing a actual piece, something that is is well thought out. So I love it. I love talking about 
wine and wine development and spirits and, and food and all of it, because the more education we have, the better we are as consumers. So when we're out looking and shopping for that bottle of wine or whiskey or whatever it is that we want to introduce to our family and friends, the more knowledge we have, the better. So that was some excellent pointers to take away from. My next question, of course, is tell me about your philosophy around nutrition. You've done a lot of the heavy lifting here at the college, developing a nutrition class specifically for culinary arts students. So my nutritional philosophy is, I tell my students actually on day one, I said it's, it's relatively unorthodox. I want people to look at nutrition not as, okay, I'm going to change my diet. We hear the word diet often. And to me, that tends to be synonymous with I am healthy because I am on a diet. A diet is just the food that you eat day to day. I would love for people to think about nutrition, not like it's restricting things. My philosophy on nutrition is what is it that I'm eating? Which items are already nutrient dense? What can I add or substitute to fit my lifestyle? Because a diet is a lifestyle, regardless of whether you think you're eating healthy or not healthy. There are many arguments on both sides of the coin. I could look at something like organic. You know, if I have two carrots that are both organic, is the taste really that different? Some people say yes, some people say no. I would love for people to get away from buzzwords, organic, vegan, and thinking about that in terms of, oh, well, well, you know, it's vegan, so it's definitely more nutritional, so it's healthier, and more of a, what am I actually eating? What are ways that I can influence the nutrient density in my food? And how do I know? So I encourage people to use certain food logging apps to really see what it is that they eat, so that way they can find ways to uh, influence their own you know, nutritional intake or, or rather uh, nutrient density intake, just because, I mean, we all eat, we're going to find ways to, to <laughs> make sure we're satiated, but mm. it's that we don't necessarily know what vitamins are in our foods, what minerals, what we're missing, what we're getting too much of. So looking at it from that standpoint and looking at it, the culinary nutritional aspect of it, like the one thing I push the most in my classes is understand what you eat, how you eat it and why you eat it. And then you'll understand why somebody would come to your establishment and eat the food that you are preparing for them, you know, how and why they're going to make the choices that they make and how you can influence them having a better overall dining experience based on nutritional principles. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. I think diet and menu is all about tailoring to fit your needs. You know, we go through and we were constantly inundated with commercial opportunities or the quick fix or all these things that say you should be doing this this way. But it's really up to the individual to pick and choose and piece together what works well for them and what can be managed and maintained versus short-term results, looking at it as a, a long-term. And even from the service side when preparing food for the public, right? Often we think, well, we pair all this amazing food on the culinary side that we still have to have some concept about how much fat, how much sugar, how much salt, how much, you know, ingredients yeah. are going in to make it make sense for the consumer as well. 
So we want them to come back and enjoy and not think it's just a splurge day, right? That food doesn't have to be limited to just this birthday party or, you know, a special holiday treat that you can have experiential dining that is still somewhat geared with a health conscious chef behind it, that the food is presented in a way that it's flavorful and just as good and just as rememberable as it would be had it been full of all those things we love. So that's awesome. Next big question, and this is kind of a wrap session, is I'm going to ask you a few quick questions and you can go one answer, one word, or you can answer as many as you like. So first one, okay. favorite ice cream. Oof, I am lactose intolerant, but when I could eat it, pistachio. Pistachio, great choice. If you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? Dead or alive, doesn't matter. Beyonce. Beyonce. What do you, what do you think she eats? I'm curious. I feel like she eats a lot of things. I, I mean, I think she's, she's married to Jay-Z. A very diverse eater also. Okay. So. If it's one thing you could change about the food industry, what would that be? Putting the word vegan in front of other words to describe the dish. I feel like veganism would be so, or vegan food would be so much more palatable if somebody wasn't trying to eat vegan General So's chicken and instead was having, you know, General So's cauliflower. I think that sounds much better. I wish we could change that. You know, I know we're kindred spirits because I feel the same way. I don't want a mushroom on the plate called fried chicken. I want it to be a fried mushroom that's really yes. well prepared and, and delicious, but you don't have to call it something. But if now, if I were a vegan, maybe from the feedback I've heard is that they want that experiential piece. They want the comfort piece to kind of make sense. But from a culinary mind, it doesn't add up, right? It's something weird. It's like, no. That, that's not I mean, that. It's a consumer, we like to call things what they are. Thing too. Yeah. If you're going yeah. into it expecting to have a flaky biscuit and it's not quite that, then you wouldn't call it that. So I don't know. That's just me. <laughs> you're preaching to the choir. Well, this has been an awesome session. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day to join me here at, at your service and best wishes and all the luck in the world with the reopened or the reinventing of Atwater's. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Let me know when you cut the ribbon because I'll be in line. Will do. Thank you so much. Thank you for Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.